Our Bible reading today is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 4. In the church Bibles, it's on page 274. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. From verse 1, it starts, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did, the, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord God Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the men entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man, the man who had brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered 
heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of, the God, of God has been captured. Verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of a gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by labor pains. As she was dying, the women attended to her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory, of, the glory has departed from Israel. Because, the, because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks, George. Brilliant reading. And uh, Natalie and her merry uh, boys and girls are going to go into their little group to study the same story. We are going to look at that passage together. Afterwards, we have open mic. If we had a mic, we'd passed around, we don't need to, we are small enough to talk amongst ourselves, ask any questions you want, say anything you want, we can uh, be like that as a group in uh, 25 minutes or so, okay? So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, and let me start by asking this question, uh, why are there so many religions? It's interesting, actually. There's a guy who I met this afternoon, a Lithuanian, who said that's a good reason why you shouldn't believe in God at all, because no one seems to get it right. But it's a fair point. Why are there so many religions? I mean, I don't just mean the main ones that you see up there, uh, Islam and all the others. But even outside mainstream religion, you get these wacky groups, don't they? People go for crystals or Stonehenge or touching wood and even people who don't reckon they're into God do that kind of thing. Why? My guess is that somehow everybody wants to try and get hold of whatever power there is and make it work for their benefit. Because let's face it, our lives are pretty fragile and there are times when we feel pretty helpless. And in those times, people everywhere pray or fast or take communion or whatever they do to access whatever there is for their own personal well-being and protection. And I reckon the religions of the world are just basically human guesses as to how to plug into God's power 
and get it working for you. If you're a Star Wars person, uh, you might put it like this. It's hard to make the force work with you uh, in the best way that you can. Now, into that way of thinking which we have in our world, chapter 4 has a lot to say. Because it tells us that God devastatingly attacks that kind of view of him. And so we're going to look at this chapter in two ways that we can nice and easily remember. One is about gory, and the other is about glory. Okay, we'll start with glory, which is blood red on the screen, uh, because you know what gory is, don't you? It's the kind of X-rated uh, casualty that happens when there's a lot of violence around. Well, that's what you've got in chapter 4, verse 1. The gory comes right at the very beginning when the Philistines attack in verse 1 and they kill 4,000 Israelites in verse 2. Now, the scale is enormous. Just imagine every bloke of fighting age on the Beckentry estate going into battle and every one of them dying. Can you just imagine the sadness in every house, in every street, down Hedgeman's Road, down Woodward Road, wherever you happen to live, in your road, in your home, the sadness. And the fact that actually it's so strongly mentioned that the Israelites lost this, so it's just so unusual that this kind of casualty uh, body count should happen, that the Israelite elders in verse 3 said it must be uh, God who is behind this defeat. It's impossible to explain it any other way. It's far too big, it's far too one-sided, it's the Israelites, for the Philistines to have done this just by themselves. So their answer is, Let's get the ark. Now, you might just not have heard about the ark before, but the ark is a gold-plated box. It's about three and a half feet long, about two and a half feet wide, and about two and a half feet high. And in that gold-covered box were mementos of God's power where he'd helped his people in the past. So it had, for example, in it uh, the Ten Commandments. It had a jar with the manna in it that God fed his people as they went through the wilderness. And it also had Aaron's <coughs> walking stick, which once miraculously budded as a sign of God's uh, great power uh, and ability to do the impossible. So all those things were in that box. That box represented the power of God, to help people to remember how great he is. All gold-plated, so you made no mistake. But the Ark of uh, the Covenant was also, by its name, there to remind you of something else, that God was a God of covenant. Now, covenant is another word for promise. And God had promised, he'd made a covenant to look after his people. <coughs> 
And you see that uh, side of the ark stressed in verse 3. If you look at the language, it is the ark of the Lord's covenant. And again, it's stressed in verse 4, the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty. So, getting the ark there was another way of saying, let's remind God which side he's meant to be fighting on. He's defeated us before the Philistines, say the elders. So let's get the ark here to, remember, to remind God that it's the Philistines he's meant to be striking, not us. It's like God's remote. Press this remote and God will start remembering again. Get the ark. It's his covenant. Except... The covenant of God also included what God would do to his people if they broke the covenant. And actually the memory loss was on their part, not on God's. And the chill goes down when you realize what a significant thing they have just done. They have brought the one thing that should remind them of the way they had failed God who would made that covenant with them. And the chill goes down when you look at verse 4 and see it described there. And you begin to realize this is not a toy. It's not a rabbit's foot. A little good luck charm that's going to give them success in the next battle that they fight. No, this is the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Hey guys, don't play games. And then, shock horror, you see the two men carrying it, Hophni and Phinehas. They are the two men that God had promised would die on the same day in chapter 2, verse 34. And they're carrying the reminder of what happens to people who break God's covenant. Now, the people of Israel don't think like that. Uh, they think that they've just got the secret weapon coming into their camp, onto their side. And so in verse 5, they start cheering like they've already won. And the Philistines in verse 7 think the game's up, that they've already lost. Now, these guys don't know everything about Israel's God. They're a bit confused. So that, for example, you can see in verse 7, they talk about a God, singular, coming into their camp. And then in verse 8, they suddenly start talking about, you know, these are the gods who have defeated the Egyptians. It's almost like saying, you know, doesn't, it, there can't be just one God if he's inflicted that kind of damage. There must be more gods. This one God must have more gods on his side to be able to do all of that. It can't be just one God working when uh, the Egyptians have been destroyed as much as they have. But then they have a bit of a logic lapse, don't they? They say, well, in that case, let's fight a bit harder. Certainly, let's fight harder than the, Philist uh, the, the Egyptians did, and we might just beat this God who tranced them. Uh, um, not the way, I guess, wise people would think, but it's how they thought and how they fought. And, and true enough, the Israelites brought the ark 
in order for there to be a table slaughter, and there was, it's just that it was the wrong way round. This time there were more casualties, 30,000 people died there, falling like flies. It seems that what God did to the Egyptians, he's now doing to the Israelites. And the ark, watch it go, was captured. And actually this time, it's just called the ark of God. Fancy titles don't seem appropriate anymore, now that the ark's gone. And the two men who are the future religious leaders of their country are both killed. It's the kind of news that would fill every single TV channel there is in the whole area. It's enough to make the ears of anyone who hears tingle. Which actually is what God said would happen in chapter 3 verse 11. When God spoke to Samuel that night. He's going to do something to make the ears of everyone tingle. This is it. Well my friends, now you know what happens to people who try and use God. And if you think this is just a one-off, it happened once, God doesn't really do it again, well, just read on the Bible and you see that he does it again quite a lot. So, for example, do me a favor, because this is important. If you could go to Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4. It's on page 765. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. Okay, the context of Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, is that uh, Jeremiah had been telling God's people that they had gone away from God, and therefore he was going to take them away into exile. He's going to put them into another country, take that country away from them. And they said, in effect, hey, no, we're not going to lose any of this. Because in chapter 7, verse 4, they were trusting in deceptive words. And Jeremiah says, don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, hey, we've got our temple. God's never going to take that away. And the answer is actually, yes, he will. Don't trust in those words. Because Jeremiah says in verse 12, what does he say in verse 12? He says, now go to the place in Shiloh. In other words, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, which is what's happening in Shiloh in our passage tonight. Okay, go back to Shiloh. And what do you find out? See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things then, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. Well, he did, didn't he, to Eli again and again. Didn't listen. I called you, but he didn't answer. Therefore, in verse 14, what I did to Shiloh in 1 Samuel 4, I will now do to the house that bears my name the temple you trust in. The place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. 
So in other words, Shiloh was never meant to be a one-off. He was always meant to be an example of what God would do if you start playing games with him and say, right, I'm going to use God for my own purposes and think God will always let me get away with it. I'll be all right. Here's the big thing. If you treat God as your route to success rather than as your reason to repent, God will end up destroying you. Shall I say that again? If you treat God as your route to success rather than the reason why you should repent and change, then ultimately destruction will always follow. may not always be in this life, but you will find that God has always a 100% strike rate against that kind of thinking. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, there'll be many people on that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I, do, did I not do this, this, and this in your name? And I will turn around and say to them, I never knew you. People who are God's people who will say, Lord, Lord, who will sound like they're Christians, who will think that they're Christians, who on that day will realize that God destroys them in a future without him. Gory is the ultimate answer. It's there in Jeremiah chapter 7 to 14 to 15, what I did to Shiloh, I will do to you if you try and use me for your purposes. Now, my friend, we're living in an area where we need to be careful. And I'll come back to that danger in a moment. But I want to go on to uh, the other outcome, which is uh, glory. You can't keep the two away from each other, and I want you to put the two together. It sounds like glory wins the day, so that the news gets back to Shiloh. There's been this magnificent defeat, and there's a great cry in the town. And you can see that in verse 13. And Eli hears the outcry. And he says, what's the uproar? He's sounding very much like the Philistines in verse 6. Hey, what's going on? And a messenger tells him that all he didn't want to hear has just come true. In verse 17, Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark has been captured. And the end result is that it was an enormous blow for him. And we can understand that because when we looked at Eli earlier, when we start to look at 1 Samuel, we saw that his heart was in the right place. He was a man who didn't want his sons to use God the way that they were doing. And I think there's some sympathy for Eli the way that his death is recorded in verse 18. The credits, the tributes are there that he led Israel for 40 years. But his death was caught up in the same judgment because he didn't stop his sons dishonoring God despite the fact that God spoke to him again and again. 
Well, you can see from verses 18 to 19, the, the, the game moves on from uh, the city gates to a birth chamber where Mrs. Finneas has a baby son and it's her last words that finish off this chapter when she says, I'll tell you how I feel, I'll tell you what has happened. I can sum it up in just one word, Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. That's actually the word that she used when she named the boy. The glory has departed from Israel. As strange that you'd expect a baby to bring comfort to a mother when she's had some pretty bad news, at least she's got this bundle of joy. But isn't it equally true for us that when we're kind of spiritually empty, that you can't enjoy anything? And she's left uh, completely devastated. And her conclusion, and you can see that stressed twice in verse 21 and verse 22, the glory of God has gone. Now, the question I want to ask you is, is she right or is she wrong? Has the glory of God gone now? Now... If you're a good politician, you want to say both, wouldn't you? <laughs> Cover your options. And you'd be right. Because, I mean, the glory of God has gone. It's not a great day. So she is right, but she's more wrong than right. And I want to tell you that for three reasons. First, because of verse 1. And that is... The chapter starts with the Samuel's word coming to all Israel. That's why that chapter heading is not there. George didn't even read it. The chapter heading is, is an add-on. It's not there in the original text. Okay, I asked George to ignore the chapter heading because the first word is the first word. The glory of God is now uh, uh, being spoken about. There's someone speaking about it, someone called Samuel. And it's coming to all Israel through Samuel. And the false leaders are removed so that God's word can once more be heard. Now, you might think, hey, God does get through quite a few casualties, doesn't he? If all he wants to do is to remove three men, quite a lot of other people die in the process. There's a lot of collateral damage, as they say, in modern warfare. This is, not, this is hardly a surgical strike. But then you've got to look at verse 5 and see that these guys who died all went along with this mechanistic idea of using God for their success. They all went along with it. They all thought that they could use God in this way. So God is not killing anyone who's innocent. And yet by the killing and by the removing of these false leaders... The nation has now got God's word beaming to it. And his glory is now going to be seen. It's not going to be lost. In the way that it was when these two men were operating. So, number one, the word of God is once more being heard. Number two, uh, 
God's not lost his touch. He is the one who is still in control. The Philistine victory was actually God's victory. Now you get a hint of that actually in verse 2, even before you get to verse 3, when you read that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Now in our translation it says it was defeated, they were defeated by the Philistines. Uh, Fair enough, they were. But the original is a lot more subtle. It says they were defeated before the Philistines. It almost implies that before their watching eyes, the Israelites were defeated. Suggests that they almost didn't have to do anything. That they were passive. God was active in the defeat of them. And the elders, when you certainly get to verse 3, see that God is the one who is controlling everything. And what we know from this story is that God is glorious enough and powerful enough to use even a nation that doesn't know him, like the Philistines, as an instrument of his judgment. And this little chapter makes clear that that is all that they are. They are just instruments of his judgment because after verse 11, it's like the instrument is put down and you don't hear the Philistines again. They've done their work. Okay, we don't need to talk about them anymore. They take the the ark home with them, which is just about the worst decision that our nation will ever make. Come back next week and you'll find out why. But it is God that has won this, not the Philistines. And he's the one who's working out his purposes. Don't think he is not glorious when he is at work. And then thirdly, God's glory will be seen again. This is only temporary, okay? Chapter 4. If you want, you can cheat. You can turn to chapter 6 and you see the ark coming back into Israel once more. But the point I want to make is that actually you've got to always see the Bible with the bigger view. You can't just look at one day and say Ichabod. Because in the end, what this book is taking you to is to show you that God's glory is no longer going to be found in a gold box. It's going to be found in a new king. That new king is going to be ultimately King David. And the reason why King David is important is that he is a preview of his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus. And there will come a day, it's a Friday as it happens, when women like Mrs. Finneas will say Ichabod. As they take their spices to the tomb after Jesus is crucified, they will be saying to themselves, God's glory is gone. But actually, that day they couldn't see God's glory God was enormously glorifying himself in the way that he was paying for the sins of the whole world. It's just the world couldn't see it because the whole place got dark. But three days later, the glory of God was seen again. Any loss of sight of God's glory is always only going to be a temporary thing. And then he comes back in view. 
So I want to suggest that actually God's glory is seen in those three ways. And we need to remember that and learn some lessons tonight before we shut down. First, if you're new to Bible teaching Christianity, and heck, there's a lot of Christianity around that doesn't really go through the Bible carefully, you might wonder if the church looks a bit defeated. It seems like secular forces, certainly in Britain, have the upper hand. Now be very careful what conclusions you come to. Because you can look at the church scene and come to the same kind of conclusion that the Philistines would have come to, that there's no real God at all, and if there is a God, he's not doing his people any good whatsoever. Look at the state of them. That's to come to a kind of Philistine view of what God is like. But actually what might be happening is that God is using the present situation to get rid of bad leadership in his church. Why? Because, for example, the secularism in Britain is shrinking the church, which means the force teachers in the church are not getting enough money to keep going. They go off and do something else. But while all that is going on, God's word is still being explained in this country. There are people, there are churches where God's word is very carefully uh, being understood and where the word of God is coming to all Israel who want to hear it. So don't, in other words, go by what is happening to the church. See instead that there are openings up for God's word, for people to listen to and understand, and primarily to see how God is glorious, not in the state of God's people, but to see how God is glorious in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the way people point to him and show us that he is more glorious than we think. If you're new and you want to understand God's glory, look there. Look at what the Bible says about Jesus. You will understand God's glory in a way you've never dreamt of seeing it before. But what happens if you're a church person and you've been to a few services in your time and even if you can't remember which church you go to and you'll have seen tonight, won't you, the danger of trying to get God to serve your agenda. To get him to do what you want him to do. Now, my friends, we know that there is a danger that is like that in the prosperity gospel, which is you go to God and he'll make you rich. Kind of. That's how it's coming across, okay? Prosperity gospel will, in the end, result in death. But there is... Um, that's quite easy. We can say, well, that's what other people do. How do we get close to this? Don't we get close to it almost whenever we pray? When we pray, what are we after? Are we just after the success that we want to achieve in life? We want God to give it to us. Or do we talk to him as if what we really want is his glory to get bigger and bigger and bigger in my life? In which case, he may not give me the success that I would like. 
Uh, the warning is clear, isn't it? God hates it. He attacks it when people try and use him to get themselves into uh, success. Now, God's... You can't use God as the route to success only as the reason for our repentance where we need to change. God is there to show us that, not how to be successful. And I think that uh, we need to be careful and learn that lesson. But then what happens if you're a believer and you want to see more of God's glory in your life? then it may be helpful for us to realize that that could happen in unexpected ways. If you were an Israelite at the start of chapter 4, praying that God would be glorified, well, chapter 4 would be a big surprise to you because it happens in unexpected ways. Often, actually, it's a failure or a defeat that uh, uh, makes us think perhaps that God's glory has departed. Something happens to us and we think, I can't see God's glory anymore. Well, take heart if you feel like that because Mrs. Phinehas is not actually right. This has happened because God is glorious. And think about it. It would have been a terrible thing for Israel to keep going down the tracks that they were going and God giving them success against the Philistines so they could carry on multiplying what they were doing, that would have been a terrible thing for God to do. He had to bring the thing crashing down, didn't he? So that he could do something new. Now my friends, God operates like that for us too. There are chapters in our lives where chapter 4 gets us crashing down because God has new things to do. God's defeats are only his way of showing you that he's more glorious than you've understood so far. So let's take heart and instead let's pray for God's glory. Let's do that. Then I can take questions that you might want to ask. Our Father Almighty, we thank you that the day will come that there has actually never been one single event in this world that has ever dented your glory. You reveal your glory even in what seems to be the greatest defeat. Not just when your people died in this chapter, but when Jesus died on the cross. Please would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might see your glory, not in the church, but in your word that points to your Son, that shows us what you are like. And then please help us to reflect your glory, not in wanting success as the route to success, but as the reason to repent so that we can now live obedient and God-honoring lives. And it is for your glory that we pray. Amen.